Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Ban, for leading us in our worship this morning. So here we are back in the Gospel according to John, which we'll be looking at over the incoming weeks and possibly months. And what we're looking at this morning is probably what is a very familiar passage to many of us. In fact, the whole Gospel of John is probably very familiar to us. We come to it with our already presupposed ideas and opinions about what the text is trying to say. But what we're hoping is that during this series, that as we explore the verses and the chapters together, that maybe we'll see something new and fresh in this Gospel that wasn't there before. So we pray that over the incoming weeks that we really will let God's Spirit speak to us as we journey through His words. And we'll discover that as we journey through this gospel according to John, that John's gospel is a kind of different sort of gospel because it differs hugely from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So maybe John wasn't written so much to get the facts out there but rather it was written with the assumption that people already knew the facts about Jesus' life. And what he's aiming to do, or the writer is aiming to do, is not just tell us what happened, but tell us what happened and what it means for us on a daily basis. And as we enter the Gospel of John, or the Gospel according to John, what we will see is that it's a gospel full of symbols and verses that have at least two or three levels of meaning. So John, as we read that gospel, is highly selective about the material that is included in it. We've already looked at how God sent Jesus to earth in human form to be light in our darkness and how the darkness didn't comprehend it because really the darkness was quite happy being dark. We heard last week about how Jesus was sent as this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And today we're going to be talking signs, times, and pushy parents. I suppose I've shared with many of you before that I'm a great starter of books and not a huge finisher. Um, I normally get kind of lost halfway through and something creeps in and I just kind of go, oh, that book might be more exciting. But I've been trying to read on and off for quite a while and please bear with my pronunciation of this because I really can't pronounce this. So I'll look at the English teachers and maybe they can tell you the right way to say it later. So I've been reading, um, I'm going to go with Dostoevsky. Great novel, The Brothers Karmanov. See, told you we'd never get that out. But the reason I want to allude to that this morning is because in that novel, there's a chapter entitled Cana of Galilee. And the author himself said that for him in the whole book, that this was the most important chapter. And I think it's important for us because it could well be one of the best commentaries on the passage that we're reading this morning and how it translates into practical action. There's a character in that novel, and I'm calling him a character because I'll not be able to pronounce his name. So there's a character in that novel who's been intending to become a monk. And he has an experience, if you will, as he tries to enter into his true vocation. Because the person who's been teaching him, who he's held in high esteem, suddenly dies. And when the other character dies, Aloysia, who's our character, 
has to go out. He, so, he was told by his teacher that when he died, to go out into the world and live like Christ among the people. So now he's faced with the reality. And in the chapter as it unfolds, we discover that the monk begins reading this story about Jesus turning water into wine. And for him, he says that it is one of the sweetest miracles, because it's not Christ entering into people's experiences in their grief, but rather Christ drawing alongside them in some of the happiest moments of their life, namely a wedding service. Okay, bear that in mind as we journey through the rest of this. Now, what's also really interesting right at the outside, I'd start to state, is that John does not call this story as it's recorded a miracle. Rather, John doesn't call anything in his gospel a miracle. Instead, he calls them signs. And in total, as we journey through the gospel according to John, we'll see that he records a total of seven different signs, the turning of the water into wine being the first. And we can assume that all this is intentional. And we can assume that he uses the term sign because he's using these events, these situations, these scenarios to point people to something beyond, to inform people about what they might expect from this Jesus of Nazareth, to point people forward to deeper meaning. But note that none of the other gospel writers seem to think that this sign in Cana was actually all that interesting at all because none of the others actually recorded. They were more impressed maybe with his stories about healings and exorcisms. But for some reason this morning in the Gospel of John, we have this story about Jesus turning water into wine. So maybe, just maybe, whoever wrote the gospel according to John saw a man whose first sign declared himself as an agent of transformation. Because to change one thing into another is to transform it, an agent of transformation. And isn't that what the moderator has been telling us to be this year in our own individual congregations and settings, is to be people who bring transformation, to find places of transformation. So let's get into the detail of the story as we encounter it. I have to say, it might be a little bit odd if you're thinking about this new Messiah who people have been waiting for for years and years and years, the fulfillment of all this Old Testament prophecy, to suddenly have this guy arrive on the scene and his first miracle or sign is turning water into wine. Maybe not quite the beginning people were expecting. Considering John's second sign is Jesus healing a dying servant's son, you think that might be a more traditional way for a Messiah to begin a public ministry. But no, in John's, the gospel according to John, what we have is Jesus turning water into wine. So it's set at a marriage ceremony in Cana of Galilee. And we know that Jesus and his disciples are there. And we know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is also there. And in some translations, the story opens with the words, on the third day, 
which could maybe be for John a way of showing or pointing forward to what Jesus's mission was all going to be all about. Because in this opening sign, what we have in some translations is pointing towards the final sign, which will be Jesus's death and, and resurrection and ascension into heaven. So the story as we find it this morning is taking place at a wedding. And there's a threat of shame in the air. Not the shame of having too much wine, but rather the shame of not having enough. Because Jewish weddings at the time of Jesus weren't like marriage services today. Not just an event that took place on one day, but would be extended over several maybe even up to five or seven days. And during those days of celebrations, guests would eat and drink large quantities of food and wine, and just like our kind of evening do, there'd be music and dancing. So Jewish weddings were steeped in ritual and tradition. And one of the customs within that tradition then would be to provide an extravagant feast for guests. But something went wrong at this wedding because they ran out of the wine early. And in such a culture into which this story finds itself, that would have been a source of great humiliation for the bride and groom. So Jesus steps in, but it's not so much Jesus steps in, but rather Jesus stepping in at the insistence of his mother. Can you imagine the setting. I was at a wedding a couple of weeks ago with my mom, and I think, you know, she can be a bit pushy at times. And, um, oh, Jonathan, you know, why don't you just get up and say the grace? Because I don't think they're going to have one. And I'm like, no, mother, no, not now. Let's just be ordinary people. <laughs> so there's Jesus, Messiah of the world, and his mother's going, Jesus, you know those things that you're able to do? Do you think you could just turn this water into wine for us? You know, let's see if you can really do it. Jesus' mom, I'm sure, might have been a little bit of mine. Oh, go on, son. Um, so, <laughs> so Jesus enters the scene, not so much on his own insistence, but rather on his mother's. And why is Mary then so concerned about this wine running out? Maybe it's not beyond the realms of possibility to say that maybe Mary knew the people quite well, or even maybe they were family relatives. And Jesus' response to his mother is quite interesting because it's kind of not overly welcoming, is it really? It's not that he was rude, but he was highlighting that his fullness of time hadn't yet come. Nevertheless, Mary instructs the servants to carry out whatever Jesus commands and issued. So as we were saying a moment ago, one would expect or think that from this invitation that Mary knew that Jesus was probably the right guy for the job here. But Jesus' response, my hour has not yet come. Vague, really, isn't it? What could this possibly mean? Well, maybe there's a variety of reasons, and probably this morning we do not have enough time to go into them all. But maybe part of it in his time not yet coming is Jesus is aware that the people there might not just get what he's about. You'll have to bear with me this morning because I am editing as we go along here, so um, we'll, see, we'll see how we do. So here we are in the midst of the story as it develops. 
Now, what I think was interesting for me as I read this during the week was Jesus doesn't really seem to be concerned about moderation in this story because we get the idea that when Jesus steps up to the plate that the party's already well underway. So the guests are probably maybe even a little bit tipsy at this point. And rather than saying, oh no, don't have another glass of wine, Jesus steps into the scene and turns water into wine. But yet what is interesting about this wine that is produced is it's not poor quality wine, it's not kind of two bottles for a tenner, it's the finest quality that is to offer. And in that moment, in that moment of turning water into wine, Jesus' disciples suddenly become alert to a possibility that the impossible with this guy might just be possible. Here is someone who is more than just another rabbi or wise teacher. Here is a man who can actually make the world come to life. Here is someone who is quite literally the life of the party. And we know that Jesus had come in flesh to undo everything that the fall had did. His wine bursts from the water jars. These jars, of course, were used in the ancient world as part of a purification rite, a thing that would wash away the sins of the people. Yet here we have this Lamb of God. Here we have this great sin bearer at a party. There is no need for this water anymore because Jesus is the Lamb of God who washes away the sins of the world. So Jesus turns it into wine. So what does this story mean for us this morning as we gather as Fitzroy? How does this speak into what we're doing? What is the story trying to get across? Well, it's interesting that we link this story with our Old Testament reading that Ian read for us. Because did you notice how the first plague was the turning of water into blood? Yet here we find the turning of water into wine. We have Moses in the Old Testament, the man who received the law from God, holding out a staff and turning the water into blood. Here we have Jesus who not only represents the law, but the law in all its fullness and grace, turning water into wine. What we're seeing here is significant. What we're seeing here is the promise of that new covenant. The old way no longer is what matters. Jesus is here to fulfill all that was said and done that would lead to his birth. Okay, so the jugs that Jesus had filled were filled with water. And as we've said, those jugs were used for purification and washing. They were there so that the wedding guests could comply with the Jewish law. And Jesus turns that ritual water into something that wouldn't fulfill the ritual law. Jesus making a clear statement. The law is good, the law is necessary, but there's more. Jesus came to transform the law into something that was not just necessary, but into something that was joyful. Jesus coming to transform the law into grace. Jesus wanting us to live this life in all its fullness that Elle shared with us in her psalm this morning. I think this kind of highlights, and you've heard it many times, what Steve has spoken about in terms of 
the Spirit of the Law, and I've forgotten what you, your other title is. Yeah, okay, so you can, you can cross all the I's and dot all the T's, but still miss the point. And Jesus is here saying, okay, this is what you should do, but there's more to it. So we have this kind of Jesus represented as a greater Moses. Just as Moses delivered the people out of Israel, Jesus is going to deliver the people into eternal life. But there's also a challenge in this story because Kierkegaard, a famous Danish philosopher in the 19th century, said that Christ turned water into wine, but the church has succeeded in doing something even more difficult. It has turned the wine back into water. So there's a challenge for us this morning. Are we encouraging people to live life in all its fullness? Or are we living lives that actually are quite trivialized? Are we pointing people to this Jesus who is in control and creator of the universe? Or are we calling people to enter into some kind of surface level living? So there's a challenge for us. If Jesus was the guest at your wedding, he'd be encouraging us to enter into life in all its fullness. And he says to us today, as we follow him, for us to enter into that fullness, to share that fullness with others, to help others encounter that fullness, and get on with the party while we're here on earth. There is so much going on in this passage. We could be here for hours. There are PhDs on the turning of the water into wine. And with limited time this morning, I hope we've been able to give a flavor of the story, some of the detail and the understanding behind the story, and that then we will be able to see as we journey through the rest of this gospel that these signs are significant. And just like that red wine in the story of the Canaan wedding, Ultimately, we will find not wine pouring, but blood pouring as Jesus dies for us before ascending into heaven so that we can be with him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to come and read your word and to reflect and think upon it. And we're once again reminded of the challenge that it is to try and live out your kingdom ways, to try and ascertain from some of the, the stories of your signs and miracles how they speak into the everyday situations that we find ourselves in. Father, we just pray that over the incoming days, maybe that you would help us to return to that reading in your word and to call on you to speak to us in new and fresh ways to encourage us, that maybe we would see something in that passage that would inspire, that would challenge us, that would call us to live differently, that would change how we interact with others around us. Father, help us to live this life in all its fullness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.